Lord, we thank you for not only your death on the cross that has paid for our sin, but also for the, um, the way that you proved who you are by virtue of the resurrection. And so this morning, Lord, would you refresh us, Lord, with the importance and the powerful impact that the resurrection is for we who believe. And Lord, what paves the way for your gospel to change lives and bring people from darkness into light. And Lord, what we have not, would you give us? What we are not, would you make us? And Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. Now, I've been in pastoral ministry for almost 30 years, and I have had the opportunity of pastoring a number of different churches. A couple of those churches had church signs, and by that I mean church signs where you would actually put things out on the sign for people to read as they were going by. Now, I just want to say this up front. I hate those kinds of church signs. And part of the reason I loathe them is because I don't think they're very effective at doing what we think that they're attempting to do with those signs. In fact, I think that most people that drive by and read a church sign are probably reading that sign and saying to themselves, what in the world is going on in that church? Now, let me give you an example of a couple of those things, all right? Imagine you're driving down the road and you read this. We love hurting people. Now the question is, do I really want to go into that church? Especially if I am someone who's hurting. Or how about this one? Do you know what hell is? Come hear our preacher. Now some of you say, I understand that one. That makes a lot of sense to me, right? Um, and people are driving by saying, what in the world? Why would they put that on a sign? Don't let worries kill you. Let the church help. There you go. That's great. And see, the problem is we, we, you know, we, we spend so much time trying to figure out what to put on the sign. And I just remember one church, and I blame myself because I brought the sign to the church and, and you know, purchased it, chose it, had it put up, and then had to every week figure out what's going to go on that sign. And before long, you're just like, oh, what are you going to put up there again? And I think sometimes what we put up, we try and be cute with it, we try and be clever, you know, and we try and ultimately communicate something, but to the public, it just seems corny. All right? And so here's one that I really don't like. This one just makes me want to go bang my head against the wall, right? CH dash dash CH, what is missing? You are. You are. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, very good. Got me there. Uh huh. Just go bang your head against the wall. What, what is going on in that place that they would put something like that on a sign? Now, if you don't understand it, someone will explain it to you later, okay? Now, I just want you to think that, that even that last one there, you know, what is missing? You are. That there's something necessary for a church to exist, and that's people. Now, I don't know about you, but when you're cooking up a meal, every meal has a list of ingredients, a recipe. And if you leave out some of that recipe, things are going to go wrong. Or sometimes you mistake something for another. At a time with my family, I was cooking up pancakes. And I mistakenly used powdered sugar instead of flour. They were in the same container, I mean, the same kind of container. I just reached for the wrong thing, and, I, you know, and, and it made a nice little kind of mix until I put it actually in the pan. And then I'm like trying to chase it around the pan. There's no actual patty or pancake that's being developed there. So if I got the, if I got the ingredients wrong, um, I actually don't have a pancake. Now, friends, this is why it's important for us to set aside a day like today Although the truth of the matter is, for the believer, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. 
And for the believer, every day is a resurrection day because we live our lives out of the power of the resurrection. But it is good for us to take some time to remind ourselves of the fact that the the resurrection is an integral part of the gospel message. And I think sometimes we leave it out. Sometimes that we, we, we neglect it. Now, it, it can be a gospel sometimes when, when, when we leave it out or when we are not clear about the ingredients of the gospel. It can be a gospel that, that leaves out the bad news of man's sin and God's wrath and the results are devastating because if you're not dealing with sin, if you're not dealing with the wrath of God, you don't really have a gospel that has any power. It's no gospel at all. Or if you leave out a sacrifice for sins, which many churches are doing, man then will try and somehow work his way to God, try to please him, and you end up getting this bondage kind of relationship or religion. But the gospel is important. We need to make sure we have the the right ingredients in that gospel. And so that one ingredient that is often missing is the resurrection. But the resurrection, friends, is key to the life of Christ. It is key to the message of the gospel. It is key to understanding and living the Christian life. It is key to our future hope. And so this morning, I would like for us to think along these lines. The resurrection fuels us to live, uh, fuels our, our lives fuels us to live our lives for the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we're going to look at here are six foundational truths that Paul brings now to the Corinthian church about the certainty of the resurrection that then are supposed to fuel them to live. Okay? And so we want to to recognize that Paul has a purpose in writing here. Now, let me just explain a little bit here. Paul is seeking to answer the question in 1 Corinthians, many questions. He has kind of a list of questions that have either been posed to him through a letter or somehow he realizes that need to be answered. And so he goes through this letter answering these questions. And he gets to chapter 15, and now he's answering the question, well, what about you know, our bodies? What's going to happen with them? And, and before he actually answers the question, what he does is he lays a foundation of understanding of the importance of the resurrection to those who are his or God's followers, Okay. And so we have this wonderful, uh, this wonderful revelation for us in these 20 verses about the resurrection, foundational truths about the resurrection that then help us to, to live our lives for the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's think about the first, the first particular foundational truth. The resurrection is essential. Let's just think through verses 1 and 2. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. We keep reading, and it says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the, in accordance to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures." Now, for most of us, this is very familiar. We understand this. But what is Paul getting at? He's getting at the fact that the gospel that he came and he preached included these ingredients, that Jesus died, that he was buried, and that he was resurrected. The resurrection, friends, is essential to the gospel that he preached to the gospel that they received, to the gospel in which they stood, and the gospel by which they are being saved. The resurrection isn't kind of like off on the side and it's like, oh, we'll go to it every once in a while. It is essentially part of that gospel. It is the ingredient of the gospel. And Paul's saying, this is what I came with. I came to you preaching this gospel. So in Paul's life of ministry, Paul's central message in that ministry was the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see it throughout his letters, throughout his preaching. And he preached it with the goal that by the Holy Spirit's power and conviction through the preaching of the gospel that others would receive it 
and be converted and become committed followers of Christ. And those who received this gospel, which included this message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, they then would stand in that gospel. They would find themselves firmly placed, finding their identity in that gospel. But even Paul, if you notice in this passage, recognizes that it's possible to have a form of belief that is empty, empty of any real conversion. He says that you can believe in vain. And the evidence of one's conversion, that one's conversion is true, is that those who have believed, received uh, this gospel, are standing in that gospel and hold fast to it. It's not something to say, well, I got my salvation, now I'm going to live my life how I want. Because what comes with the conversion is a submission then to Jesus Christ as Lord of your life, that he is the one who's dictating how you are to live. And when he commands us to live a certain way, he also provides the means by which we are to do that, and that means is the power of the resurrection. You were brought from death, to new life, and now you live this life in light of that power that he has, he has given you by virtue of this conversion, by virtue of his promise. So it's possible to believe in vain. So friends, that's a warning to us because many people can be moved emotionally by a gospel presentation. But emotions can only last so long. It sounds good. It's sentimental. Yes, I want the love that, that God has for me. Let me take that. But, but that sentimental, uh, sentimentalism is not the gospel. And that is not what is required. Many people simply will conform to what Christianity looks like. They'll just come and be a part of it. They'll come to church, and they might even read their Bible. They might even try prayer. But that doesn't necessarily mean there actually has been any conversion. Sometimes people um, will, will simply develop the habits that others have modeled for them or their parents have modeled for them. And so they might actually believe, but in vain. And so we've got to be careful that we are not the ones who are believing in vain. We who are God's children believe that Jesus died for our sins. He was buried and that he rose again. Friends, this is central. This is essential to the gospel message. And we must always remind ourselves that to evaluate the authenticity of our salvation, we look at the fruit that is present in our lives. Things like that we have a, a hunger for obedience to Christ, especially when it's not popular. Or we have a joy to serve others rather than serving ourselves. We're eager to be fed by the preaching or the teaching of God's word. Our desire is to be around those who are believers, fellowshipping together, enjoying what God has, uh, has done to bring us together, to be united together. So friends, there's no room in Christianity to say you've received or believed the gospel, but you're not standing in it, or that you're not continuing in it key ingredients of the gospel, he died, he was buried, and he rose again. So he's saying it's possible to neglect it, to forget it. So friends, this is kind of a, a quick warning on the front end as he's reminding the people. That's the first truth that he wants us to see. The second one is this, that the resurrection is rooted. It is rooted in particular in the Old Testament scriptures. That's why he says in verses 3 and 4, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And the Scriptures he's talking about there are the Old Testament Scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And so the gospel that Paul received, the gospel that he, he delivered or preached or taught, was, was from and rooted in the Old Testament. So turn your Bibles to Luke 24. Luke 24. Let's just go on a quick little journey here and, and discover some of the truth of that. Luke 24. 
If you remember, Luke 24 is post-resurrection, and what we find in Luke 24 are two disciples having heard what happened in the garden, that Jesus' body was not in the tomb, and some were saying that he is now alive. They were having this conversation between each other as they're walking, and Jesus comes along. They don't recognize him as Jesus. And so they start sharing with him, like, what, you don't know what happened in Jerusalem? Like, where have you been? Which reminds us, just by the statement there, that this was news that was widespread. And here's what happens as Jesus now responds to them as they're talking about this. Look at chapter 24, verse 25. And he said to them, to these disciples, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, for it was... uh, Uh, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all uh, the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Now, there are are some sermons I want to hear, and this is one of them. And I, I hope, you know, digital world was created before we figured it out, right? Somewhere in heaven, you can, you can actually hear this recorded scene as Jesus walks with his disciples and he shows from them uh, in the Old Testament all the different places that were pointing to who he is as this Messiah. Later, uh, in, in that day when Jesus was with the rest of the disciples, he said this, look at verse 44 and following. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That is a statement that basically says in all the Old Testament scriptures. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. You get that? Jesus himself is attesting to the fact that the Old Testament not just speaks about his death and burial, but it also speaks about his resurrection. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, he says. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. So friends, here, here is just Jesus instructing the disciples about the fact that the resurrection is rooted in the Old Testament. Now, Jesus and Peter and Paul and other writers of the New Testament regularly quoted or referenced the Old Testament scriptures. And I'll give you a number of them that you can look at yourself beyond what we just looked at. Genesis 22, Psalm 16 in particular, and verse 10 says this, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. In other words, Jesus may have been put in the tomb, but he was not going to experience corruption in that tomb. Why? Because he was going to be raised from that tomb. Okay, it's just one example. Now you can look at the others we read um, uh, from Isaiah 53, but it would be a different section, verses 10 and 11, Hosea 6-2, Daniel 12, 2 and 3, And we don't have time to go through all that this morning, but I just want you to understand that the Old Testament speaks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the resurrection is essential, but the resurrection is also rooted in the Old Testament. And not only that, friends, uh, we know this because we walked our way through the the Gospel of Mark, Jesus himself, when he came Uh, into his ministry said a number of times something like this. This is Mark 8, 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So not only was this something that's rooted in the Old Testament, this was also part of the divine plan that Jesus was telling his disciples was going to take place with him. So the resurrection is essential It's rooted in the scriptures. Third, the resurrection is verified. It's verified by eyewitness accounts. Now, I think in our culture today, an eyewitness account is somewhat sketchy, right? Because we have have like, you know, phones with us, and we have videos. But even those we now realize can be doctored, (laughs) right? 
But in a court of law, the eyewitness account still stands as something that, that, that verifies something to be true. So let's just read through this little text here, verses 5 uh, through, through 7, maybe a little, little 8. It says, and that he appeared, and notice that word appeared, to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and to all the apostles, and then ultimately he appears to me, he says. Now this list of individuals and groups that personally saw Jesus alive after his resurrection saw him within a span of 40 days. Some of the recorded appearances also included physical examination by those who were seeing him. And Luke 24, verses 36 and following says this, and as they were uh, talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do you... Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Thomas Arnold of Oxford, he was a historian, and this is what he says about the resurrection. The evidence for our Lord's life and death and resurrection may be and often has been shown to be satisfactory. It is good according to the common rules for distinguishing good evidence from bad. Thousands and tens of thousands of persons have gone through it piece by piece as carefully as every judge summing up an important case. I have myself done it many times over, not to persuade others, but to satisfy myself. I have been used for many years to study the history of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence of those who have written about them. And I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is better proved by fuller evidence than the great sign that God has given to us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. Now, friends, you see, there are are people who would say, oh, the, the resurrection is just a myth. But quite honestly, many of those people have not even taken time to examine the evidence of it. It's just what they think. It's what they perceive. Ultimately, it's what they want, because if you can remove the resurrection, then you don't have to be accountable to what the Word of God says. Now, in the Gospels, we're told that although Jesus was present with some of his followers after his resurrection, they still didn't recognize him until he revealed his identity to to them. That's true of Mary Magdalene, That's true of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, that once he revealed himself to them, their hearts were burning because of what they heard and the time that they had with him. And then to those disciples who were gathered together on that day, he eventually revealed himself to them. But let's go through this list a little bit closer here. He appears, first of all, to Peter, to Peter. And let's remind ourselves this, that according to Acts 1.22, One of the requirements of being an apostle was having seen the resurrected Christ. So just think about this. If there is no resurrection, then there are no apostles. Because in order to be an apostle, you have to have seen the resurrected Christ. You with me there? Okay. And Jesus here, uh, sorry, Jesus is clearly uh, appearing to Peter, and he's the first one of the apostles to see Jesus. Now, we don't have a narrative account of that. But in the commentary of the two men on the road to Emmaus, in particular verse 34, it reveals to us that it took place sometime between the revelation, Jesus' revelation to Mary, and his revelation to those two men. They understood that Peter had seen the risen Savior. Okay? So he appears to Peter. Secondly, he appears to the 12, talking here about the disciples, except for Judas, of course. That took place there in the evening. John 20, 19 tells us that. Then he appeared to the 500. Here's how one commentator commented on this. He says, the quality of specific witnesses is, uh, is represented by the apostles, all of whom were known by name and could be easily questioned. 
The quantity of witnesses is seen in the 500 brethren who all saw the risen Christ at one time. So you have the quality and you have the quantity. So again, these are evidences trying to prove by the evidence that Jesus Christ actually did rise from the tomb. And although they're not named in this text, these 500, they are clearly known by the writer and they are known by the community of faith. Because he's saying in here, you know what? They're still alive if you want to talk to them. So there's two things here, though, that, that, are, that are mentioned about them. They all saw Jesus at one time. It was a shared experience. When you have 500 people looking at the same thing and come to the same conclusion, that's pretty good evidence in the court of law. Okay? That's the point here. And not only that, some of them are still alive. So if you want to go talk to them, you want to go interview them, they'll say, yes, we saw the risen Lord. All right? Then he appeared to James. Of course, now the question here is, which James are we talking about? There are two James that were part of the disciples. James, the son of Zebedee, and James, the son of Alphaeus. But there's another James, James, the half-brother of Jesus. And I would lean to say that this is James, the half-brother of Jesus, one of the reasons I would say that is because James was a skeptic. And so to mention him here is to mention that even the skeptic, who was a family member, has now seen the risen Lord, is a pretty powerful statement, isn't it? Here's a person who didn't believe, but not only didn't believe, he didn't believe because he was a family member, he was familiar with Jesus, now he's seen him risen from the tomb, the evidence is there, to say, you know what, this actually did take place. And of course, James would be a key leader in the church in Jerusalem, and he would also write the letter of James. So he's a key individual in the unfolding of uh, the, the, the gospel and the unfolding of the church, that early church. Then he appeared to all of the apostles during those 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Acts 1-3 tells us, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So there was a, a, a constant appearance during that time with Jesus and the apostles. And then finally, he appeared to me. Listen to what John Stott says, a well-known pastor in England. Um, he says this, perhaps the transformation of the disciples of Jesus is the greatest evidence of all for the resurrection. It was the resurrection that transformed Peter's fear into courage and James' doubt into faith. It was the resurrection which changed the Sabbath into Sunday and the Jewish remnant into the Christian church. It was the resurrection which changed Saul the Pharisee into Paul the apostle and turned his prosecuting into preaching. There's just some things there to think about, the power of this, this resurrection, because that's what happens here now, because Paul now goes into this mode of saying, I was one of those people who saw Jesus, and I was changed by it. But what's significant here is that Paul was not one of the apostles back then. We're told there, verse 8, last of all, as to one untimely born. In other words, I wasn't there at the beginning, I came after. And if you remember, Paul was a persecutor of the church, right? And I mean, he was zealous in his persecution of, of Christians. And yet God in his kindness and grace intervenes in Paul's life while he is on the road to Damascus. And it's on that road where Paul is converted and where Paul then is fashioned and shaped. Just read our text here. He says, as to one untimely born, this is verse 8, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But... By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. God got a hold of his life. Someone who didn't deserve it. Someone who was opposed to the gospel, and 
God radically comes in and changes his life. His grace was not in vain. He says, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, talking about the other apostles. He's not saying this in an arrogant way. He's saying that all happened because of the grace of God that was in me. You get this. It is the gospel and it is the power of the resurrection that changes people's lives. It's radical. I mean, to move from darkness into light is not just a decision that someone makes. You don't just say one day, oh, I think I'll stop darkness, I'll enter into light. No, no, no. Your whole being, your whole nature has to be reborn, has to be renewed, it has to be changed. How does that happen? By the power of the resurrection. And because of what Jesus Christ has done in dying on the cross for our sins. So what Paul is saying is that the resurrection is powerful and radically changes lives from hateful, zealous persecutor of the church to a faithful, hardworking apostle of Jesus Christ. My friends, I can attest to this truth. Like many, or if not most of you here in attendance today, although I grew up in a Christian home, I was not a follower of Christ. My parents were actively involved. And I just remember just walking a path that was contrary to that. I wanted nothing to do with the church. Oh, I went along at times, but I mocked my parents um, and their faith. I remember uh, when we, they would have home group at our home, I would be upstairs with my friends, and we'd be laughing at everyone singing downstairs. We thought it was just a bunch of nonsense. When I did go to church, For a season in my life, my goal when I went to church was to embarrass my parents so much by what I was wearing. So I'm going to go to church, but you're not going to like it. And this was the 80s. Remember the 80s? You know, Keller's wow, boo, you know. I mean, I just, I wanted to embarrass them. Why? Because I didn't want to be there. I didn't want anything to do with Jesus, the gospel, or the church. But one day I found myself, having moved to the United States, having uh, a, a beginning now in an attendance at a Christian school, not because I wanted to go to a Christian school, but because I wanted to play soccer. The coach was a youth pastor at that school, the church that had the school. And every day when they had soccer practice, he would share a devotional. And as I listened, I was beginning to be convicted. And then he preached in chapel the first week of school, And God just got a hold of my life, and there was nothing that I could do. I had to repent. uh, Friends, that's a radical change. That wasn't my nature. It wasn't like, oh, I think, you know, I'm just going to choose this. No, God had to come in and shake me silly and say, this is what I want. I want you. Come to me. And he radically changed my life. It was unexpected. It was radical, it bore fruit immediately, and things happened in my life, I began to to realize, oh, what's coming out of my mouth actually is important. And there were were issues in my life, things like anger, even as as a young man, playing on the soccer field, I'd be the guy that'd be yelling at everyone, right? And yet God changed that. I'd only yell at a couple of people instead, you know, so... No, he just, he worked on that, but I began to see that the point here is this, that this radical change not only brought conversion, but it it also brought an ongoing change in my life. Now, friends, what I am saying, we could go around this room, and so many of you could say the same thing. This is where I was, this is what I believed, this is what I was doing, and yet God came and slapped me silly with his gospel, and now I'm one of his children, and I'm so thankful for it, because where I am today is only the result of his gospel, his grace, and his power power of resurrection. That's who we are. Now, some of you might be wrestling with this. You're wrestling with your emotions because you're hearing this emphasis on the gospel and the resurrection, and you're just not sure, should, should, I, should I listen? Should I pay attention? Should I just kind of stiff arm the pastor right now or the word that he's preaching? Maybe you're feeling shame or, or excitement or uncertainty or conviction. All those emotions are moving around. I know what that's like. I was there. Or maybe uh, you might be wondering what people might think. Oh, man, what other people think can cause so much damage in our lives. 
And friends, I understand that that might be important to you, but I would encourage you to think more about what does God think? Because one day you will stand before him and what he thinks will be far more important than what your friends think or your family members think. And I'm not saying you're rude to them, but it's God's opinion that matters most. You might be thinking that you are just not good enough. Like, how could God accept me, all the things I've done? And listen, (laughs) you're not good enough. Can I say that again? You're not good enough. That's not very kind of you, Pastor. All right, then I'll say it again. You're not good enough. That's the whole point of the gospel. We are not good enough. We need someone who is. And that person who is, is none other than Jesus Christ. So the point here that we need to recognize is that the the power of the resurrection changes people's lives. And that is evidence of the truthfulness of that resurrection. And friends, there is a solution to this whole thing. It's humble repentance. It's a recognition of your sinfulness. It's going to God saying, please forgive me for my sin. I want, Lord, to be one of your children, and I am confessing my sin, and I am determining now by your strength and through this gospel to now be changed and for you to be the Lord of my life. Friends, there is hope for those who are willing to believe in the resurrection and its power to change people's lives. So the resurrection is essential, it's rooted, it's verified, it's powerful. Next, the resurrection is crucial. The resurrection is crucial. It's crucial because there are no other alternatives See, what do you mean by that? This is Paul's argument. In the Corinthian church, there were true Christians who were getting caught up with the false teachers that, and what they were teaching. In particular, there were false teachers that were teaching that there was no such thing as the resurrection. And these were keen Christians. These weren't like, you know, stubborn Christians. These are people who really wanted to follow the Lord, but they get themselves caught up in this confusion that, eventually, that essentially you know, denied the, the essential part of the faith, that is the resurrection. So they were, in a sense, sitting on a branch of the tree, sawing away with their arguments, but not realizing they were on the wrong side of the branch, and that they were going to fall down. And so Paul then gives us a number of verses here to say, listen, if there is no resurrection, this is what we have to look at. This is what we have for us. This is the reality. These are all hypotheticals. But he's trying to lay out for us now by means of proof what would it be like if there is no resurrection of the dead. All right, let's look at the first one. If there's no resurrection, then preaching would be pointless. Look at verses 12 through 14. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So stop there. There's no resurrection, then Christ hasn't been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. In other words, Paul is saying, that if there's no resurrection, that his whole life of ministry in the gospel would have been a total waste of time. All those times when he faced suffering because of preaching, when he was put in jail because of preaching, when he's endured beatings because of preaching, all those times of struggle were a total waste of time. All those missionary journeys, all those men that he trained for ministry and that he equipped, All of that would be pointless. And Paul would have to look back on his life and say, I was a fool to do what I was doing and believe that there was any power in that. So preaching would be pointless. Secondly, faith would be foolish. That's what he says there at the end. And our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. So if I'm coming to you with preaching that has nothing to it, 
and you're believing then a message that really is not a true message, then your faith is a waste of time. To put your faith in a Messiah, to receive his gospel, to rest your hope fully on a sacrificial lamb would be foolish, would be pointless, and empty of purpose and power if there is no resurrection. So going to God in prayer by faith would be a waste of your time. Worshiping God in song would be an empty endeavor. Raising your children to love the Lord would be just a vain pursuit. Trying to put off sin and put on righteousness would simply be a shuffling of one behavior for another. It would be meaningless. Reading your Bible with the hope that the Holy Spirit is going to work in your heart is a worthless pursuit because Jesus has not been raised and there is no resurrection. Or living by faith in Christ in this world, well, it wouldn't be any different than living by faith in Ronald McDonald or Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny. See, we we can't, all the things I mentioned are pointless if there is no resurrection. Why read your Bible? Why go to God in prayer? He's not going to do anything. He can't do anything. He has no power to do anything. So friends, it's crucial because preaching is pointless. Your faith would be foolish. Here's the third one. The apostles would be then deceivers. Verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he Raise Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. So he's saying, if, if you believe that the dead are not raised, then Jesus Christ was raised. And then, if that is true, then we have been going around preaching a message that is a message of deception. Now, just, just imagine this. You know, if we gathered, you know, 12 brothers from this church and said, we want you to go out and preach a message that is not true. Go do it. See what happens. So you start preaching a message that isn't true and churches rise up. Well, why are the churches rising up? I don't know. Because they're believing this message that isn't true. You see, you see the, the folly of this. And if they're preaching a message that isn't true, not only is it total deception, it is a grand conspiracy to sway the gullible public. All they want to do is to preach a message of fear so that people would be under control. Now, friends, what's interesting is that's the kind of response that many have even today about the Christian church, that all the church wants to do is to preach a message that will control the people. All they care about is morals. All they care about is being in control. All they care about is money. If that were true, Let's just drop the mic and walk away. But that isn't true. And so he's, he's using this argument here to help us understand the implications if we deny the resurrection to be true. Ultimately, people would say that those men in the Bible were just a bunch of men who wrote what they wanted to write in order then to somehow manipulate society and be in control. What deception? What grand conspiracy? Well, let's continue on. Not only that, sin would still be reigning, wouldn't it? Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Now ponder that, friends. There's no resurrection, then we are still in our sins. Faith in Christ won't do anything about reconciling you to your father if he did not rise from the tomb. Because a Messiah who is not raised is not a true Messiah. So God forbid you're still under the yoke of bondage. You're still awaiting the wrath of God, his judgment that you deserve because of your sin. This is what would happen if the resurrection didn't take place. 
Next, death would be victorious. Verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. You and I who believe the gospel, if the resurrection isn't true, face a death that simply means we turn to dust. It's over, it's done. There's nothing to celebrate, there's no victory. There's nothing to look forward to. It's just the end. That's what he's saying. This is the implication if there's no resurrection. And finally, the future would be fearful. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only. In other words, it's only good for now. We are of all people most to be pitied. We'd be fools. People would look at us and say, you're crazy for conforming your life in the way you have and believing what you're believing. It's just a fool's errand, and you've been sucked in. But all these arguments and conclusions are simply hypotheticals, friends, that find their resolve in verse 20. Look at verse 20. Paul just kind of has, just goes through saying all those things, and then he pushes back from his, his desk, so to speak, and he says this, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So the last point here is this, that the resurrection is factual. You say, well, wait a second. That's just what Paul is saying. Well, Paul is saying, but Jesus is also saying, oh, you have evidence throughout the Scripture that the resurrection is true. It's a fact. Now, I want to ask you a question. What do the following men all have in common? Josh McDowell, Lee Strobel, Lou Wallace, Albert Roper. You know, they're all names. I don't know who they are. That's good. All right, get it. All right. They were all skeptics that took a hard look at the evidence for the resurrection in order to disprove it. Josh McDowell, he was a contemporary of mine, was a cynical non-believer who scoffed at the Christian faith until he met a group of students who had a peace, a joy, a contentment, and just lived their lives in a way that he couldn't explain. So he asked one of the girls in the group, what, what's, you know, what's different about your life? And she replied, Jesus Christ. And so he mounted an intense and prolonged investigation into the historical reliability of the resurrection, seeking to discredit it. But to his utter amazement, he discovered that he could not explain away the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as a result, he became a Christian and one of the chief proponents of the faith during that era. In fact, you may know him as having written the book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, which was a classic for many years. Then you have Lee Strobel, all right? A little younger. He was an atheist and a skeptic, a graduate of Yale School of Law and a journalist for the Chicago Tribune. He scoffed at Christianity and regarded the resurrection of Jesus as a fairy tale. But when his wife became a Christian, he started to have some questions. And he's like, all right, I've got to go study this out and, and disprove this. It took him two years of interviewing some of the greatest scholars and authorities. And remember, he was a graduate of law school. He was also a journalist. And so he had, he had skills of discovery just by virtue of what he did for a living. And he had rules that he understood that qualified what were good evidences, what were bad evidences, and so on and so forth. So he used those skills and credentials as a, 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 as a legal affairs journalist to investigate the claims of Christ and the reliability of the historical evidence of the resurrection. Today, Lee Strobel is a believer, and he has two excellent books that you probably read or have at home, The Case for Christ and The Case for Easter, that are the fruit of that investigation. Again, I'm just trying to just reinforce the fact. Unbeliever claims the resurrection is foolishness. They go and they actually do a serious study of the evidence. 
using the right rules of consideration to determine whether it's true or not, they discover, guess what? There's something to this from an evidentiary perspective. And as a result, they are converted. Lou Wallace, um, he sought to discredit the resurrection and also ended up becoming a Christian through his investigation. You may know him as the author of one of the greatest novels about the time of Christ, Ben-Hur. Albert Roper, he was a prominent Virginia attorney, and he ended up, well, he was a graduate of the University of Virginia School of Law, and he became ultimately the mayor of Newark, sorry, Norfolk, I should say, and he began a thorough investigation of the resurrection by asking himself this question. Can any intelligent person accept the resurrection story? And like others before him, he examined the evidence at length and came away asking a different question. Here's the different question. Can any intelligent person deny the weight of this evidence? Now, he wrote a book entitled, Did Jesus Rise from the Dead? My friends, if you reject the truthfulness of the resurrection, you must still face the facts. For you just to say, I don't believe in the resurrection, means likely that you have not taken time to examine the evidence. It's just a a hardened disobedience to say, I want to live my life the way I want to live it. I don't want to pay attention to the, the claims of Scripture. I'm going to do what I want to do, and because that is true, I don't even want to look at the evidence. Now, you can do that, but there's a consequence for that. And those who have had that kind of opinion, who've looked at the evidence, have come to a conclusion, and the conclusion is that this evidence verifies, solidifies that the resurrection is an historical fact, and as a result of that, have come and bowed their knee to Christ themselves. Jesus says in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though, though he die, yet shall he live. Now, friends, when you're speaking to someone who's already alive and you're saying, if you believe in me, you will live, you know you're talking about something different than physical death and a physical life. You're talking about spiritual death and spiritual life because you can be physically alive and spiritually dead. But because of the gospel and because of the resurrection, you can be physically alive and spiritually alive. And when you physically die, you're still going to be alive in Christ. That's all because of the power of the resurrection. That's what Jesus is saying. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Friends, you can't get away from these evidences. Now, friends, since the resurrection is true, what does that mean for us? What Paul gives us the answer in this chapter, doesn't he? He actually continues on in this chapter talking about what happens to the body and a number of other things that relate to the resurrection. But he finishes with a concluding statement, and it begins with with, um, this word, therefore. Look at verse 58, chapter 15. Therefore, my beloved brothers, speaking to the church here, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, if you were following along in the text, some of the claims that Jesus Christ had not been raised, some of the deniers of the resurrection did not come from outside of the church, they came from people who were inside the church. And so he's trying to bring clarity to those who are believers about the importance of the resurrection. You can't deny the resurrection and still claim to be a follower of Christ. It won't work. Now, you can be a follower of a 
newly formed Christ that really isn't the Christ, one who just is about love and is accepting of all no matter what and doesn't care about any kind of uh, uh, view of, of what the, the Godhead desires for mankind or sin, that's not the true Christ. But those who want to follow Christ, the Christ of the Bible, the Christ that's revealed in the text of God's word, must come to this subject of the resurrection. And they must recognize that this resurrection then fuels them to live in a certain way. The, the resurrection certainly gives us assurance about what has taken place in the past. This took place. It, 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 it was true. It is factual. It has been proved by even these witnesses that Paul mentions. And it gives hope for the future that one day we who are his children will also be resurrected. We look forward to that day. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And we know that we are going to be united once again with our bodies um, at the time of the judgment. Now, having said all that, that isn't where it stops. Comfort for the past, assurance of the future, but also this now gives us fuel to be faithful to live our lives now. How? In the power of the resurrection. Now, just kind of cursory thinking through the text that we've read, you didn't believe in vain. God's grace to us has not been in vain. The preaching of the gospel isn't in vain. Your faith is not in vain. Your hope is not in vain. The resurrection, friends, is not in vain. It's not empty. It's not meaningless. It is essential. It's powerful. It is rooted. It is verified. Now, friends, this is the resurrection. So now as you live for Christ, your labor is not in vain. So the resurrection fuels us to live by being steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Let's just kind of finish up by thinking about those words. To be steadfast connects back to verse 2 to what we saw there where believers are to stand in the gospel. So you, you recognize that you are identified with Christ. Don't, don't let, allow anyone to kind of remove your identity in Christ, who you are. Be steadfast, be, be consistent, endure. Second one is immovable. Don't let others who want to lead you astray with arguments against the truthfulness of the resurrection win the day. Stand firm, just like a soldier would stand firm in battle. Don't move away from what you know to be true. And friends, this is important, in particular with our kids who are going to schools where they have ungodly teachers, and by that I simply mean they're, they're people who don't know the Lord, who are trying to fill them with ideas that are contrary to what Scripture teaches. And we want to encourage our children, we want to teach our children to stand firm and to be immovable in that context. That is true in the workplace. There is a great pressure in the world today, in, in the business world today, to conform to the ideals of the world and to be silent about what you believe should be true or a certain way of thinking and behaving that simply would flow out of Scripture. And this is a challenge for us then to be immovable. Don't allow those influences to, to knock us off of that pedestal, but to, let's stand and be immovable with the truth that we know is true. And then it says, always abounding. That's a word that means to overdo something. Um, to exceed the requirements of something. In other words, I think, I think this is a challenge for us then as believers, having, having the reality that the resurrection has changed our lives to, to say, what am I doing with my life? Am I just going to be a comfortable Christian, living in my comfortable society, with my comfortable interactions with people? Or is there something else going on here? And I think in our, our comfortable American Christianity, we can be more satisfied with the trivial, the insignificant, and the short things, or short-lived things of this world I mean, think about this. How can we take it easy when so many around us are dead spiritually and so many follow, uh, fellow believers are in need of edification, encouragement, and help of all different kinds? When a Christian 
um, says, I've served my time, I've done my part, let others do the work now, that's kind of saying, I've checked out. You're no longer abounding. Now, I realize sometimes you get to a place physically you're too old, but you're going to shift your focus. There are things that you can do. There are things that God has provided that are great uh, ways that you can serve the body, but you're continuing to abound. You're continuing to say, if this is true, if I've been radically changed by the gospel and the resurrection power, then I'm going to live my life in such a way that reflects that. But here is what is true for the believer. Our work for the Lord, if it is truly for him and done in his power, is not in vain. It will be the means by which and through which God will work to bring about what he desires to accomplish. We have God's promise that our labor, this work to the point of exhaustion, is not in vain in the Lord. So friends, just two questions to leave you with. Question number one. Having taken the time to look at this passage, do you know the power of the resurrection? A power that can change your life forever. Now please hear this. You may have been coming to Gateway for eight years and you've conformed You played the part, sang the songs. You may have been involved in public ministry in the church, but never actually experienced a true conversion. You don't know personally the power of the resurrection. It's possible to do that. I know when I go to pastor's conferences, there's one pastor that every time he preaches by the name of Mark Dever, he'll look over the 4,000 pastors that are there and he'll say, I know all of you are pastoring churches, but it is possible, in fact, it's very likely there are some of you pastors here who are serving in your churches who are not truly converted. And friends, we've gotta be mindful of that reality. We've gotta ask ourselves the question, Am I truly a follower of Christ? Have I just kind of believed in this this simple way that says, well, I believe God exists? Or have I bowed the knee to God and said, God, radically change me through your gospel. May my life be reborn. Use me how you will. I confess my sin. I humble myself before you. You are my Lord and Master. And you experience this radical change. True conversion, friends. Secondly, if you are a follower of Christ, are you living in the power of the resurrection? The resurrection isn't something we just hold in the back, say it happened. The power of the resurrection is the means by which you and I are able to live today. Now, for many of us, we know that. But let me ask you to be reminded of that to look at your life afresh and say, this is what is before me. It could be an obstacle, it could be an opportunity, it could be a, re- a responsibility. How am I gonna face that? I'm gonna face that as a child of God with the power that God has given me through his resurrection. He is gonna help me. This is where we take all the tools, the benefits that we have because of Christ, and we seek to live them out Daily, so it means spending time in the word. It means going to God in prayer. It means fellowshipping with believers. It means praising him in song or giving in the context of church. All those things are all part of the means by which we are excuse me, expressing the power of the resurrection in our lives. And then as we're dealing with sin and we're putting off and we're putting on, we're doing that not in our own strength. We're doing that in the strength that God gives us. If we neglect the resurrection, we are neglecting an essential aspect of the gospel message. Revisit it, love it, learn it, live out of it. Lord, help us today to take a serious 
look at our own hearts, at our own lives. Lord, your resurrection is no small thing. Man's society may not want to recognize it as true, may belittle, might mock us for believing something that they would consider to be a fairy tale. But we who know you as our Lord and Savior also know that what you have done, not only dying on the cross, not only being buried, but Lord, also being raised from that tomb, have given for us a picture of what happens to us in this this new life that we have in you. Lord, may we live in this strength, in this power, with this, this, this resurrection fueling us to take a fresh look at life and how we are living for your glory. Lord, this morning I do pray for anyone who may be here who does not know you, who's wrestling with these things. Or maybe someone who's been conforming or just walking through the habits of Christianity. Oh Lord, would you bring conviction, a beautiful, sweet, powerful, life-changing conviction, Lord, and draw them into your fold. Lord, we pray for that. We pray for your people to once again be refreshed by the power that is only in you and through you. We ask this in your name.